When Pastor Larry asked if I would uh, cover for him this week, I was glad to do so, give them an opportunity to get away and, uh, and uh, just enjoy one another, and I'm sure that was a good time. But he made the very helpful suggestion that perhaps um, I could cover this week a particular topic, uh, nothing, nothing too serious, just uh, the whole concept of holy war in, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, very helpful suggestion, and so I decided to call this uh, sermon Now, there, there are some people are of a certain age that they catch the illusion here. Um, holy war, Batman, you know, and right you are, boy wonder, kind of thing. <laughs> we might get into that, but that's not going to be the focus of our time this morning. We're, uh, we're in 1 Samuel 18 to 20, the story of Jonathan and David, and it's always difficult to take one of these stories that are so familiar to us and, um, and draw some fresh insight from them, um, which we hope to do. It's kind of like preaching um, David and Goliath. How do you draw out more than just the story? We're so familiar with this passage, uh, and uh, we, we have visions in our mind of what that looked like. Uh, admit it, when Pastor Larry was teaching last week, you imagined a, uh, a large pickle as Goliath, didn't you? Some of you? Uh, these familiar stories are difficult for us to, to refocus, and so we need to ask God to help us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for your word, the opportunity that we have to study it and to be directed by it. I pray that your spirit might be with us this hour to help us comprehend the message that you have for us. We thank you for brothers and sisters that hold us accountable. Would you be at work in our hearts? We pray in Christ's name, amen. Our passage in the Old Testament is bounded on each side by words of covenant. In the Old Testament literature particularly, there are times when an author will begin with certain wording and will end with certain wording of the same topic. And what that shows us is that it's a unit, of, it's a unit within the book. It's a distinct, discrete unit of focus. And so what we have in this text is at the beginning of uh, 1 Samuel 18, we have uh, Jonathan making a covenant with David. And we have then at the end of this narrative, we have Jonathan said to David, go safely in so much as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord. That's covenant wording. That's, that's where you make promises. And uh, we have wordings of covenant. It's for this reason that oftentimes the focus of this uh, passage directs us toward friendship, how to be a good friend, what to do in friendship. But there's a, a larger focus that's at work in this section. It isn't just about David and his friendship. In fact, the, that portion shows up relatively infrequently within this passage. There's so much more. Let's, let's see if we can get some background as to what's going on while this friendship is played out in David and Jonathan's life. These are some of the events that take place in 1 Samuel 18 to 20. 
Uh, David receives more praise than Saul. We heard about that last week. Saul is jealous because David is, uh, has the acclaim of the people and seems to be loved more by the people. And so Saul tries to kill David by means of a spear. And apparently, uh, if we're understanding the text correctly, actually had to dodge the spear twice. And um, then David, uh, Saul tries to kill David by dowry. Uh, this is that episode where David uh, becomes the king's son-in-law. And the dowry was that he had to kill 100 Philistines and show evidence that he had killed 100 Philistines. Uh, We won't go into, uh, at this point, what that evidence was. You can read it for yourself. But let's just say that probably this would prove these people were dead. Uh, uh, Then David uh, commands Jonathan and his servants to kill David. So it's not enough that, that Saul is trying to kill David. Saul is ordering his son and his servants to kill David as well. Uh, and over the course of time, and this, these chapters probably cover a couple or three years of time, uh, David is uh, estranged from Saul and Jonathan is peacemaker to bring them back to reconcile them. But uh, here we go again, same song, second verse. In uh, chapter 19, verse 10, Saul tries to kill David again. And uh, this is where the javelin gets stuck into the wall. Um, David arranges, Saul arranges for David to be killed at home, and you recall that David's wife helped him escape. Are are we picking up a pattern here? Is there a a theme that's running throughout these chapters? Uh, Saul tries to kill David at Nioth, and he's supernaturally prevented by God from doing this. And all the while, Jonathan is covering for David, is helping David avoid Saul, And finally, helping David to flee Saul. Uh, He provides David with an excuse why he shouldn't be at a particular festival. And so David doesn't show up. Saul, Jonathan's father, is angry. Jonathan and David vow together their friendship once again. And it's in this section of chapter 19, uh, chapter uh, 20, that we get the most expanded uh, view of what that friendship, uh, the commitment that was being made there. Uh, Jonathan discerns finally after this period of time that Saul is intent on killing David and uh, his mood has gotten to the point where he's certainly going to put David to death and so he tells David that it is time to flee. That's what's going on in this context in which we have the friendship between these two men. Now again, we talked about how at the beginning of a section and at the end of a section, Often a writer in scripture will introduce a subject with certain wording and then complete the section with the same sort of wording. And usually what that means is it's a unit of thought and there's a theme that's running throughout. And sure enough, we have a theme that appears to be running throughout other than the fact that Saul is trying to kill David. That's not the major point that's in the background. The major point is the covenant between these two friends. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Then we're told that, that, that Jonathan plays out that, that covenant relationship by protecting David and by reconciling David to Saul and by finally, ultimately, giving David good advice to leave. That particular covenant is elaborated in that David promises, uh, Jonathan makes David promise that he would not be killed 
And David makes Jonathan promise that he would um, tell him what's going on in the king's household so that, so that he gets a heads up before Saul might come after him. So running through this theme is this, con- is this friendship, to be sure, but it's a friendship based upon covenant. And if we pull the camera back just from that one episode where they're promising to one another in chapter 20, we see that there's a, there's a larger covenantal theme that's at work. Because Joshua is not only a good friend, but he is a man who lives by the terms of a covenant. He has covenant characteristics. There are characteristics to a covenant man. And though our passage before us can be applied to men and women, the focus particularly this morning is going to be on men because I think we can identify with the, the plight of Jonathan and David and it's going to be important for us to consider what does it mean, what does it look like to be living as a covenant man, to be living by the covenants that we've made with God and with family. This particular passage One of the great words in scripture is the uh, Hebrew word for covenant loyalty. You might see it translated in your text as loving kindness or uh, loyalty love. Uh, Don't always do this, but this is such a fun word to play with. This is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed is just one of those, those, it doesn't roll right off the tongue. It kind of spits out of the back of the palate, just chesed. You can remember it because it's the sound that a camel makes clearing its throat. It's just chesed. But that word, though it doesn't sound pretty, is rich in its theological import because this is covenant loyalty. And when Jonathan and David are promising to one another, they are saying, we have a covenant between us. And Jonathan, I want you to live out your covenant responsibility to me by giving me a heads up when Saul is in one of his moods. Uh, Let me know what he's doing. And Jonathan says, we have a covenant relationship, David, and I want you not to kill me. And we'll get into that a little more. But we're not going to look at that chesed between them so much as Jonathan as a man who lives by the characteristics of a man in covenant. Jonathan is a covenant sort of man. And one thing we can see about Jonathan in this passage is that uh, he puts God's program ahead of his own program. This was a man who was willing to set aside his own agenda for God's agenda. And we see it in this passage. Jonathan should have been king. Um, Everyone knew this. Everyone realized that uh, Jonathan was to be the king. Uh, Saul makes it explicit in chapter 20 when he says to Jonathan, for as long as this son of Jesse lives, as long as David lives... Neither you nor your kingdom will be established. You can't have the kingdom, Jonathan, if David is alive, is what he's telling his son. Jonathan recognizes this. Uh, At the latter part of this narrative, he says to David, May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. What's that about? Well, he was with my father as when he was king and granting success. May God also be with you when you are king. And if I am still alive, when all of this is sorted out, if I am still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord so that I may not die? 
It was a practice in those days when a new king would come to the throne that anyone else that had a claim to the throne would be put to death. And you recall in the Old Testament you have these stories of a person would come to the throne and the first thing he did was kill his 70 brothers and half-brothers. That's because he wanted to secure his kingship and there would be no other claimants to the throne. Uh, Jonathan says, I know that you are to be king. May God be with you. If I survive, keep me alive. And if I don't survive, take care of my family. This is a man who was to be king, and he willingly gave up his own agenda and what was expected by everyone around him for the agenda of God. Uh, He would have sensed that David was going to be the king because, after all, he probably heard the story of how uh, Samuel had turned away from Saul and Saul had grabbed him to keep him restrained and it ripped the garment and Samuel had said to Saul, Thus your kingdom is going to be rent from you and given to a fellow who is better than you. And that wasn't going to be Jonathan. We can also see from the narrative that David was prospering militarily. In that day, the king would have an anointing of the Lord. And the Holy Spirit was upon the judge or the king. And when he would go to battle, he would have success. And when he would come back, he would be praised by the people. Because they recognized that he had an anointing, a charisma upon him. That the Spirit of God was on him and he was working mightily. We've already heard in chapter 16 that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. In the same context in which David is anointed, he now has the authenticating for leadership spirit of God upon him. And whenever he goes out, he's successful. Whenever he's out and about, he uh, comports himself well among the people, and they like this man. It is obvious that the affections of the people are set on David. Also, he was acclaimed by the people. They saw him in the gate. They, They loved David And Saul holed up in his castle, uh, in his stronghold, did not have the affection of the people. David was protected from Saul. I mean, how many times was Saul trying to kill this guy? And still he got away. You've got to know that the Lord is with that man. And in the narrative, David marries Saul's daughter. And so ipso presto, to use the Latin, he would have been... Not really Latin, but it sounds like... I mean, right now, ipso presto, he was third in line. He was, he was Saul and Jonathan. And since he had married into the family and he was such a military, great military commander, he would have been third in line. Jonathan realized that he wasn't going to be king. But he was okay with that. In fact, he encouraged that. Uh, you recall that um, after David slew the Philistine. Jonathan put his own robe, the robe that was on him, he gave it to David along with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Now we look at that and we say, well, was David cold and just kind of had the shivers and so he put the coat? No, this was, uh, this was an emblem of his rank. And when Jonathan took that cloak off and gave it to David, he was saying... You are the man who is destined to lead. You are the one that is to guide Israel, not me. And gave him his implements of war. Uh, That's a remarkable thing to even give him his sword. Because you recall in the earlier battle, 
it says that no one in Israel had a sword except the king and his son Jonathan. Now, they'd had some battles and they probably picked up swords on the battlefield and so others would have swords. But uh, we're at a time when the technology is changing from bronze to iron. And Israel didn't have iron capability early on in this period of uh, Saul's reign. That would come later at the time of David. And to have a sword that not only could slash, but also could stab with strength, you had to have iron. And Jonathan was willing to give his sword to David. Now, it might not have been the only sword in the army by this time, because they would have picked some up in battle along the way. But you've got to believe his would have been the second best sword in the entire camp. Saul would have the best one. Jonathan would have the next best one. He's saying, I give you these emblems of authority, these emblems of rank. Uh, Because Jonathan was more interested in the program of God than in his own program. Well, it might be that Jonathan was just kind of a... uh, a milk toast sort of fellow. Uh, maybe he wasn't all that courageous, and uh, possibly he was relieved that he could give this over to David because now he could go back and read his books and do whatever it is he wanted to do instead. No, that's not the picture we have of Jonathan. He was a mighty warrior who took the initiative to do hard things for God. He was fully engaged in God's program. We have, for example, going out of this narrative of 18 to 20, back into chapter 14, we have the battle of, uh, of chapter 14, where Jonathan said to his armor bearer, they were across the ravine from another, the Philistines, and he said to his armor bearer, let's show ourselves to the Philistines, and if they taunt us and tell us to come over, then we're going to go over because the Lord has given them into our hands. And if they... If they start to come towards us, we'll know that we're to leave. And they get there, show themselves, and the Philistines, and I always picture them as kind of talking like French peas. Where does that come from? Is that, oh, yes, yes, you Israelites, you come over here and we will clip your toenails kind of thing. Um, saw that someplace, read it in a theology book or someplace, the French peas that were against the people of God. The Philistines taunted them and said, we want you to uh, come over here. We've got something to tell you. Yeah, I bet they did. But we're given a very interesting uh, piece of narrative. It says that Jonathan went over the ravine uh, and went back up on his hands and knees. And upon getting up out of that ravine, they killed 20 of the enemy within probably the area of a half an acre, maybe a little bit more than a a lot in a city block. Uh, Now, maybe it was kind of an easy, easy to get over onto the other side of the ravine. Maybe it was something like this. (laughs) You remember that? Um, Where Batman and the Boy Wonder scale the walls of, uh, of Gotham City. But then you realize, kids, what they really did was they had those... They had pictures of buildings, and they had the camera turned 90 degrees, and Batman and Robin were just doing this. And they were filming it to look like they were 
walking up these buildings. That's, uh, that looks hard, but it's easy. It looked hard, and it was hard for Jonathan and his armor bearer. This is the, uh, the region of Michmash, and this is the area that uh, they would have, would have had the, uh, the ravine, uh, we suspect. Now, we don't know for sure, but we are told that this ravine was so formidable that they actually named the two sides, and it were given that in, in 1 Samuel 14. The garrison was on the other side, and there was a sharp crag on one side and the other, and the name of the one side was Bozes, and the name of the other side was Sena. Now, we don't know what those names mean, uh, but anytime you name a physical feature like this, it's because it's quite a physical feature. They would have to, uh, they would have to climb, oop, they would have to climb down and back up the ravine. That's why they had to use hands and knees to get handholds along the way and to shimmy up this, this ravine. It's kind of like, uh, is it Wesley that's climbing the, the rope in Prince's Bride? And the, his adversary, Car- Carlos Mendoza, something, is standing there kind of tapping his foot like, come on up, uh, let's hurry so I can kill you kind of thing. Well, here are 20 Philistines watching Jonathan and his armor bearer clamber up the side of this ravine. Um, They are at a decided advantage. Jonathan has picked a very hard thing to do. He gets up onto the top of this precipice and he kills the 20 men. He and his uh, armor bearer kill the 20 men that are there. This was a man who engaged himself in the program of God. And at that time, the program of God was to kill the Philistines. And I suppose it's probably at this point that we should talk about that whole idea of the Old Testament and holy war. Uh, In the Old Testament, God had said, when you go into the land, the cities that are nearby, you have to kill everyone. For example, we have in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 to 17, Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes. That includes animals. You shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. That seems rather harsh. Just go in and kill everyone. But often in the context, we can see that there's, there's other information that we need. They are to do this so that you may not, they may not teach you according to all of their detestable things, which they have done for their gods, so that you would sin against the Lord your God. You are to eradicate those people because they will teach you to do some very nasty things in worship. They were into child sacrifice. The thinking was, in order to show myself very sincere, how can I show my God that I'm very sincere? Well, I'll sacrifice a child. Well, that's, that's vile. Uh, God says you're not to do that. They also worshipped by means of sacral prostitution. Uh, this was a vile culture. Part of the reason that God wanted them to kill everyone Everything that breathed was because this was going to be a punishment for extraordinary manifold sin. 
all the way back in Genesis 15. God, in talking to Abraham, said, Know for a certainty that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, Egypt, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. God is going to allow the Amorite to continue in sin. And at a certain point, he's going to say, that's enough. I'm going to punish them for their sin. Part of the reason that Israel was to kill everything was as a means of judgment. We also know that a reason God wanted them to kill everyone was because he wanted to establish Israel as a focal point of his person and of his character. He put Israel right in the land bridge between Europe and Africa and Asia so that anyone going anywhere, any trading that was going on would have to go through that land. And we pick it up partway through Deuteronomy 4, 5 to 9, where it says that the other peoples are going to look at Israel and they're going to hear about these laws that God has given and then they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding uh, people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only take heed. Be diligent. Teach these to your children, he goes on to say. The nations of the world should have been able to see this nation as a different sort of people. And God would have to start out by eradicating all of the wickedness that was in the land beforehand. Another reason for holy war was that God was going to preserve the seed of Abraham. And so God says, uh, if you ever go back, uh, Joshua is speaking to Israel before his death, if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. They will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes until you perish off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Part of the reason for holy war was to preserve Abraham's children as a distinct nation. Now what's going on in the larger picture of scripture is that in Genesis, God had said the seed of woman would, would ultimately defeat the seed of the serpent, the devil. And we know that that's ultimately going to be fulfilled in Christ at his crucifixion. Then the promise was made that through the seed of Abraham would come the one that would bless all of the nations. And again, we recognize that this is Jesus Christ. If they had gone into the land and if they had intermingled with all of the others of the land and become just as they were, then there would have been no seed protected for this one to come who would be the redemption of the world. They went into the land. They did not eradicate the people. They were uh, whips and thorns. And God finally took Israel out of the land, took them into Babylonian captivity to preserve them as a people, and then brought them back uh, and preserved them through the 500 years until the birth of Christ. God is at work to preserve the people. So we have uh, the reasons for annihilation. God was punishing sin. 
God was preserving his reputation among the nations. God was preserving the seed of Abraham. The question is, well, what about Christians and this whole idea of warfare? How does that relate at this time? And we would look at the New Testament at those various passages that talk about the Christian fight. Ephesians 6 is very familiar to us. Uh, We can't get into all of the details, but this has to do with how to live as a Christian and how to minister as a Christian, and that's a spiritual battle. That's spoken of in military terms. We have as well Christians oppose satanic teachings and exercise governing discipline in the church. That passage in 2 Corinthians 10 that says the weapons of our warfare are not spiritual, are not physical, but spiritual to the pulling down of strongholds, those strongholds are bad doctrine, bad thinking about God and his relationship with people, and uh, exercising church discipline as, as Paul is interacting with this church that is estranged from him. That's a spiritual battle. That is spiritual warfare for the Christian. And something that we understand more so than the Old Testament saints, we understand that there's an ultimate final judgment where God will, will open all of the books and he will reconcile all of the accounts. We see indications of this whenever we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Aren't we saying, your kingdom, let it be on earth? Ultimately, aren't we saying, punish the sin of earth and establish your righteous rule? Another passage that has to do with uh, this anticipation comes to us from Luke 18. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? The answer is obviously no. And then in the context, it talks about Christ coming back. Christ is going to come back, and he is going to bring justice to those who cry out to him. Again, in 2 Thessalonians 1, a passage given over to our, uh, a, de- a description of the coming of our Lord, it says, After all, it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and give relief to those who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. God will one day punish those who are afflicting his saints. And again, at the end of the book of the Revelation, it says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, that is the destruction of Babylon, the destruction of this world system that is seeking to counter what God is doing. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Christians understand that there is a payday someday. They understand that God will take care of of this ultimately and will judge. And there is not the command for us to judge the enemies of God on this earth at this time, the physical enemies of God. I am intrigued, however, by some wording here. His elect. This has to do with how God chooses. And we're in a context in Samuel where God is choosing one king and not another, and the people chose, and yet God chooses someone else. All of that predestination and election going on. And this is a context as well, talking about the return of Christ that relates to the covenant God made with David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7. And I just know that Pastor Larry, when he gets there, is going to cover all of the issues related to election and predestination and the second coming of Christ. And uh, 
I, for one, am looking forward to that sermon. Yeah. <laughs> Old Testament saints were living at a different time. We have a different time. We have a different type of warfare. Another characteristic of covenant man, another characteristic that Jonathan displays in our text is that he made provision for the next generation. If I am still alive, will you not show loving kindness, the loving kindness, chesed, of the Lord, that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And again, at the end of the narrative, go in safety insomuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord be between me and you and between my descendants and your descendants. Jonathan realizes he might not live. In fact, if history is any indication, he will not live. But he wants to make sure that his family is taken care of after his death. When we approach an Old Testament passage, we need to ask ourselves, how do I apply this in the New Testament age? How do I live this out, this, this story that's in front of us? How do I live that out? And these stories are given to us uh, with hints as to the principles that are in the text. And we've seen three principles in this text. And our goal is to take that Old Testament passage and hold it up to our faces and see the reflection, see how we measure up with respect to that, and see how we conform to those principles that God has put in place. For example, uh, we know that Jonathan put God's program ahead of his own program. But the question we have to ask is, do I do that? Do you put God's program ahead of your own agenda? Here are some areas we might think about. Do you factor God's will into every decision you make? What does God want me to do here? What does God have planned for my life, and what decisions should I make in the light of that? Do you live in the light of God's program? Rather than thinking of self and agenda, God and his agenda, what are you sacrificing for God? Jonathan sacrificed his kingdom. Are you begrudging God's claims on your life? And what if God calls you to do something that runs counter to your family's expectations, your folks, or society in general as they look at you? Uh, What happens if he calls you to something beyond that? Now, we need to insert a footnote here, a caution here, because all things being equal, we would understand that we should highly value the advice of our parents. Uh, We should value the advice of of wise people who have, who have been around a while and know how the world operates and how God works within that. But at the same time, it might be, and I, probably some of you are studying for a particular service to God, and uh, your folks don't understand that. They can't figure out what you're doing. It's a mystery to them when you should be out making money and, and advancing your career. Jonathan was fully engaged in God's program. Do you boldly do the work of God? Do you look for the hard thing and seek to do it, to bring glory to God? Do you hate the things that God hates? The focus here is on the spiritual life and and hating the things that God hates, hating the evil of the world, not hating people. But uh, do you have that focus in your life? 
Jonathan made provisions for the next generation. Here's some questions we might ask ourselves. Are you praying for your children? Are you praying with your children? When the family reaches a little crisis point and there's a difficulty, when someone in the family gets very sick, uh, do you gather the family together and say, we need to pray for Aunt Susie, we need to pray for our friends who are going through this sort of difficulty and pray together with your children as well as for your children? Are you educating your children in Christian values or are you relying on the school to educate completely or maybe the Christian values come from the learning center when you know the focus has to be on the house and everything else is supplemental to that? Have you taught in the learning center? Uh, the, The lessons are much easier. The questions tend to be easier. And it's a good exercise to invest in the children of others because what I've found in years of ministry is that the, the youth minister ministers to someone's kid in the audience. And then that child grows up and ministers to the youth minister's kids. And there's this back and forth of connection where together in a congregation we're helping one another, but we're also helping generationally because the child you train today is going to be the pastor that counsels your children later. It's, it's part of God's program. Are you mentoring younger men? And you women, are you mentoring younger women? Are you thinking in terms of that next generation? There is a tendency in a talk like this to end up by saying, go get them. Um, We don't want to focus in that way. What we want to do as the worship team comes up, what we want to do is to uh, ask the Spirit of God to help us identify one single area to apply to your life out of this text to hold that text up and say, where do I fall short, Lord, and where do you want me to become more like a person who is in covenant with you by virtue of our salvation? And pray that God would grant you opportunity. If you'd like to come and pray, the leaders of our church would love to pray with you and answer any questions that you have. But let's focus our hearts on applying the word of God. Thank mm-hmm. you.